Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. We read this passage along with our treatment of Lord's Day 15, which speaks of the suffering of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We hear God's infallibly inspired word. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, He deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Ye see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy and upon the Israel of God. From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. It's especially that reference in verse 14. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ to which we make reference along with other passages as we look this morning at Lord's Day 15. In the back of our Psalter on page 9, we have question and answers 37, 38, and 39. What dost thou understand by the words he suffered? That he, all the time that he lived on earth, but especially at the end of his life, sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind, that so by his passion 
as the only propitiatory sacrifice, he might redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtain for us the favor of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? That he, being innocent and yet condemned by a temporal judge, might thereby free us from the severe judgment of God to which we were exposed. Is there anything more in his being crucified than if he had died some other death? Yes, there is. For thereby I am assured that he took on him the curse which lay upon me. For the death of the cross was a curse of God. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul expresses his confidence and his confession here in verse 14 of Galatians 6. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Everything that the apostles taught, everything that they preached, was related to the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ was the peculiar message that the apostles preached to the known world of their day. Now, what does it mean that they preached the cross of Jesus Christ? It means that everything focused around what the Heidelberg Catechism here states at the last part of question 37. That only propitiatory sacrifice by which he might redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtain for us the favor of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Everything focused around that glorious confession, salvation through the suffering of Jesus Christ alone. And the apostles established that as a test to determine whether a teaching was false or true. Was it in harmony with the cross of Jesus Christ? Was Christ crucified at the heart of the message? And was Christ crucified the comfort of the message? Jesus Christ himself demanded this in Matthew 20, verse 28. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give his life a ransom for many. Yet today, that's the standard that we must use. Is the preaching, is the teaching of the church centered around the confession that Jesus Christ suffered, that he was crucified? Is the death and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as that one sacrifice necessary for our salvation set forth as the only comfort of the church of Jesus Christ? We make that our confession when we confess in the Apostles' Creed that he suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified. It's very striking that the whole life of Jesus is set forth in one word in the Apostles' Creed. His whole life is described as suffered. He suffered. His whole life he suffered. And that suffering began already when he was born. And all of that suffering culminated in the three years, or the three hours of darkness on the cross. All that suffering necessary for him to pay the price of the salvation of his people. 
From early on, Jesus knew the reality of the cross. And that cross stood before him his whole life long. That suffering of the cross was real. And we confess this morning, not only the reality of that suffering, but the fact that that suffering was for me. That suffering is my salvation and my comfort and my hope. We look at confessing Christ crucified. Noting, first of all, the unique suffering. Secondly, the divine extent. And finally, the joyous fruit. That he, all the time that he lived on earth. The life of Jesus Christ revealed that his suffering was unique. The whole of his life was lived under the shadow of the cross. We see that in a unique manner through the temptations that Jesus faced. The devil always seeks to direct temptations at us in such a way that he weakens us. And often he attacks us when we're most vulnerable, when we're weakest. Satan tries to get at us when we're at our lowest point and tries to use that temptation as a way then to correspond with our greatest weakness. Say it may be fear or anxiety. The devil knew that Jesus' weakness was the horror of the cross. And so, that becomes the focus of the temptations that the devil brings against Jesus. Trying to tempt him from early on that there could be a different way. That he wouldn't have to go the way of the cross. He could, for instance, just bow down to the devil. And in that way, he could attain the glory that the Father had promised. And so, especially the third temptation of the devil immediately after his baptism, focuses on that. You can attain dominion. You can attain lordship in a different way than the cross. Just bow down to me, and I'll make you ruler of the world. Near the end of Jesus' ministry, Peter resisted the thought of Jesus having to suffer and die. And remember how Jesus interacted with Peter. Jesus told the disciples, I need to suffer, I need to die. Peter took vehement response to that and said, no, absolutely not. And Jesus' response showed the devil was behind that again. And the devil trying to use that as a way to tempt Jesus. Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. It was the devil that was behind Peter. This was a real temptation for Jesus, according to the human nature. He was a man. And from that perspective, as we've noted, no different than we. None of us desires to suffer. We shrink back from suffering. And Jesus shrank back from the prospect of that suffering on the cross. And that having to endure the wrath of His heavenly Father. And no place was that more obvious than in Gethsemane. You children remember what took place there. The thought of the cross and the suffering of the wrath of God for the sins of His people was so revolting to Jesus that it reduced Him to His knees in the dirt of the garden, crying out to God in prayer, in inexpressible anguish. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Intense pain, intense suffering. The Son of God in the dirt, 
crying out for mercy. And then on the cross, an equally strange cry. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why, O God? Why? Note Jesus was brought so low that repeatedly he's questioning God's will with regard to his suffering. And yet he's doing it without sin. Psalm 22, Psalm 69, a versification of which we sang, Isaiah 53, are some of the passages in Scripture that record that intense suffering of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And if you have opportunity this afternoon, read those passages, meditate on them. Those passages speak of the whole life of suffering that Jesus endured. Suffering, not just at the hands of men, but primarily a suffering that was at the hands of God, His Heavenly Father, for the sake of the sins that He took upon Himself of those whom He represented. What's remarkable is that Jesus was able to see behind the earthly instruments God. In all of His suffering, He didn't see men. He didn't see earthly incidents that were bringing these things to pass. He knew all of this was from the hands of His Heavenly Father. And He willingly and lovingly submitted to His Heavenly Father. We do well to think about that. When we suffer, the quicker we can get past the earthly instruments that God is making use of and see God as our Father, as the one who is leading and guiding us through those situations, the quicker we will be comforted. And that was the comfort that Jesus confessed and that from which we learn. He saw behind those instruments and He saw His heavenly Father in love leading and guiding and directing all the various incidents of his life. And as he endured that, he did so never committing any sin. The more quickly we can see our Heavenly Father in the midst of all of our suffering and struggles, the more comfort we will experience as well. Looking beyond that suffering to see the love of God for us. Jesus saw God's love behind all of those things. Now as Jesus walked through life and as He went through this life, again, it's striking. The one word the Apostles' Creed uses to explain His whole life is He suffered. And that's the way that the Bible also reflects it. The Bible could have told us many things about Jesus' life. It could have expounded on all of the various times of laughter and when he interacted with his siblings and as an adult, as a child. No doubt, Jesus had times of joy and relaxation. But what is it that the Bible conveys to us throughout the Gospel narratives? Jesus' suffering. Weeping. We have Jesus sighing. We have Jesus praying. The whole of Jesus' life characterized by 
bearing that burden of the wrath of God for the sins of his children. Suffering physically, but primarily spiritually. Now sometimes we have children who are very quickly, will, it, they'll quickly complain because of pain. And it doesn't take us long to determine differences among our children and the fact that some have a greater tolerance and others have a lesser tolerance. Some might be inclined to say, but Jesus was more of a wimp. He didn't have much of a tolerance for pain. He was a coward. We realize that that cannot ever be said about our Savior Jesus Christ. The Bible makes clear he was courageous. He was strong. He was the eternal Son of God who had infinite strength as Jehovah God. We sing of him as such. We worship him as such. And yet this one, very God of gods, was reduced to the dust by the very thought and consideration of the cross. Now why? The suffering of the cross was the bearing of the wrath of God against him for the sins of his people. Never in the future will any man ever have to suffer as Jesus suffered. And no man ever has suffered as Jesus suffered. His suffering is unique. Even those who are in hell currently and who will face hell and be in hell to all eternity will not suffer as severely as Jesus Christ. Now, how can we make that bold statement? Jesus' suffering was not primarily physical. It was spiritual. There are those who would try to explain it primarily as physical suffering. That's the only way, for instance, a movie or a dramatic presentation is able to convey the suffering that Jesus endured. And for that reason, we don't watch. We stay away from those presentations. Actors can only convey a physical suffering. They have no idea. They cannot even begin to imagine the true horror of the cross. They are not innocent men being punished for the sins of all mankind. And that's what made Jesus' suffering so unique. An innocent man having to bear now the wrath of the living God for the sins of all those whom he represented. Death by crucifixion was horrible. The Romans reserved that horrible death for only the worst of criminals. The pain was tremendous as one was suspended by his hands and feet on the cross. And add to that, we could, the fact that Jesus is being killed by the church. The church of his day nailed him to the cross and hangs him on that tree. He was being excommunicated from the church for his conduct. Those that walk by mock him. They revile him. And then add to that his disciples. They're involved in his death. One disciple betrayed him. Another denied him. They flee. They don't help him. He stands alone. But even that still does not get at the horror of the cross. Jesus' suffering was unique because of the fact that he bore the wrath of God without deserving it. He did not deserve the wrath of God. He did not deserve the pain that was inflicted on him. And he bore it in such a way that he felt that pain. He felt that wrath with every aspect of his being. He felt it with his soul. He felt it with his body. And what made it even more unique, he suffered as one who's God. One who's divine. 
In this way, even the suffering in hell cannot begin to compare to what Jesus endured. First, he knew and he felt sin in all of its horror for what it was. That which is opposed to the holiness of God. Sin is that which is shameful. It's that which is ugly. When you or I fall into sin, especially a particularly gross sin, we experience distress and shame. We know the horror of that sin. There is that about sin that makes us sick. Jesus, as the Son of God, experienced that horror with regard to sin and that shame. He experienced it as the Holy One. Our sense of sin gets dulled to a degree. We are sinners. We sin every day. We begin to become calloused to that sin. Partly that's due to the influences in our life. We watch television shows. We watch movies. We listen to music. We hear news reports. We look at pictures that we see in magazines or elsewhere. Soon we become somewhat dulled to sin. Sin doesn't impact it, us as it ought. Jesus never experienced that. He never lost a sense of disgust, a sense of horror with regard to sin. He never took sin for granted. He was pure. He was holy. And sin affected him as it affected no other human being who ever has lived. He saw his Father's will being violated. And as he saw his Father's will being violated, that caused him untold sorrow and untold grief. He wept. The third, Jesus was the Son of God. He had the person of the second person of the Trinity. He left all the joy, all the blessedness of heaven in order to come and suffer for the sake of those whom the Father gave him. When the horror of the wrath of God was poured out upon him, it came upon one who is familiar with the bosom of the living God. He experienced a beautiful relationship to his father. He loved his father. He was one in essence with his father. And now the father is turned against him in wrath. And it was not his fault. He had done nothing to deserve this. That made the suffering uniquely severe. Again, no one in hell has ever experienced this as none of them had God as their father in the intimate way in which Jesus knew God. And then he suffered, according to the catechism and scripture, for an innumerable company of men and women. It's one thing to suffer for my sin. Those who go to hell will suffer for their sin alone. Jesus suffered the shame and the guilt and horror of the sins of all of his people. Every sin imaginable, he endured. Except, of course, the unforgivable sin. It's striking that we sang from Psalter number 184 in the third stanza. And maybe you caught that. The foes who hate me unprovoked are strong and still increase. Though to disarm their enmity, my right I yield for peace. Striking. That's what Jesus did. He yielded his right to the bosom of his Father in order to work peace 
with his children. He didn't just keep silent in an argument. Sometimes that's wise in an argument. Keep silent. Just don't say anything. But his goal was peace. And in order to attain that peace for the sake of disarming the enmity and working peace, he yielded himself to that sacrifice for sin. All his life long, from birth on, he heard the word of God resounding in his soul. The soul that sins, that soul must die. And he felt the horror of the cross like none other as he bore the sins of all of his people. He knew the need for crucifixion as the accursed death, as question and answer 39 here states. The death of the cross was accursed of God. Now why was the suffering on the cross so unique? Why so severe? Beloved, Jesus Christ suffered for you and for me. This is how grievous your and my sins are. In the suffering of Jesus Christ, we need to see our Savior. And we see the blessed assurance of our salvation. We see in the cross the only solution for mankind. Here's the only answer to sin. The problem of sin is real. The soul that sins deserves to die. The only way out is through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, consciously took upon Himself the sins of all redeemed mankind in order that He might remove the horror of sin once and forever. His suffering unique. Now, secondly, we look at the divine extent of that suffering. The Catechism says, first of all, why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? There's a very important truth that's set forth in connection with his suffering under Pontius Pilate. And it's this. Jesus Christ did not have to suffer for himself. He had done nothing to make himself worthy of suffering. He was not a sinner. He was not sinful. His suffering was not for himself. It was for those whom he represented. Jesus died for his people. Now how does this phrase, suffering under Pontius Pilate, bring that out? If you think back on those events that occurred before Pilate, and you think back on what Pilate did, what is the significance of Jesus being judged by Pontius Pilate? It was this, that he stood before the judge who represented the whole world at that time. The church world and the whole of the known world. And he stood judged by all. And what was the judgment? You remember what Pilate said, I find no fault in him. Pilate's judgment was he is innocent, and yet I'm going to condemn him to death. The suffering under Pontius Pilate brings out that important truth. This man did not deserve to suffer. He did not deserve to die. His suffering was not about himself. It was for the sake of someone else. He was innocent. God judged and condemned him through Pontius Pilate as the one who was blameless, who was perfectly innocent. Pilate, representing the world and the church, declared unmistakably, this man is innocent. 
He has not done that which he's being accused of doing. And you remember how Pilate declared that innocence to the whole world so that everybody who knew Greek, everybody who knew Latin, everybody who knew Hebrew saw that inscription above his head. Ordinarily, that inscription would describe the reason why that person deserved to die. What was the inscription above Jesus' head? Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. He was being put to death for who he was, not for anything he had done. That inscription made unmistakably clear to everybody walking by. What what did he do? Why is that man dying? That man is being condemned because he's Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. He's the King of the Jews. He claimed himself to be such, and he was. But what it demonstrated is his innocence. He was not guilty. The men on either side had inscriptions that declared their guilt. They'd committed concrete sin. He had not. His suffering, therefore, was not about himself. It was not for himself. The innocent one was being condemned for the guilty. He bore the wrath of God for those whom he represented. He was judged so that you and I might be freed. And that extent is set forth here in the Catechism. The wrath of God against the sins of all mankind. The Catechism here is conveying the words that are found throughout Scripture. John the Baptist in John 1, verse 29, claimed that Jesus was the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Now the idea is not that Jesus died for all men, head for head, without exception. If that's the case, then all men, head for head, are going to heaven. There's no such thing as hell. There's no need for hell. There won't be anybody in hell. As we compare Scripture to Scripture, we realize that cannot be the understanding of this passage. The Bible makes clear there is a place called hell, and that there are people in hell, and that hell is real. All men fell in Adam. God could have stepped back and allowed the whole human race to perish everlastingly. But he didn't. In mercy, he chose to himself some out of the fallen human race. The canons of Dort face that question on the basis of Scripture in the first head, very carefully laying it out, article after article, with clear, careful arguments as to why Jesus did not die for all men. God ordained that Jesus would die for those whom the Father gave him. And that the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, would go forth to those whom God, in his good pleasure, ordained, in order that they might be brought to a knowledge of their salvation. If the cross was for all, then the gospel would go forth to all. But God decreed differently. The gospel would only go to some because the cross is only for some. And then when the gospel is preached, the Bible makes clear there's going to be a different response. Some are going to despise it. They're going to stumble over Christ. He's a rock of offense and they'll perish everlastingly in their sin. Whereas others are going to hear. They're going to respond and they're going to experience salvation. 
Why the difference? God's work of faith. God works faith in the hearts of those who are His own, whom He's chosen from eternity. God doesn't give faith to all men. And therefore, some are saved. Why then does the Bible and the Catechism make use of this language? The whole world, or all men, or the whole human race. The Bible emphasizes this truth. Jesus did not come to die for individuals. God teaches us how we're to understand the church. The Catechism wants us to reflect accurately what the Bible teaches. The elect are a body. And they're not just a people out of every nation, tribe, and tongue, but they comprise the human race. They comprise the mankind. They comprise the world. The tree has its root in Adam. God cut that tree of the human race in Adam. He cut it off. But then he planted it again in Christ as her root. God works on that tree in such a way that all of the reprobate are removed. And as he prunes throughout the whole of the ages, that tree becomes the beautiful tree of God's elect as they live out of Jesus Christ. A most beautiful tree is realized out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Every manner of peoples brought into the glory and the wonder of that beautiful, complete body. So that Jesus died for a complete number of individuals, elect believers throughout all of the Old and New Testament. And they're described as the true Israel. They're described as the ones who are the true Americans, the true Mexicans, the true mankind out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. The real human race is the race of elect for whom Jesus died. Jesus died for his children without any distinction. He died for all without any distinction of their race, their place, their calling, their color. Every background, every way of life, from every tribe, brought into the glory and the beauty of this mankind. When Jesus was finished suffering, the wrath of God was finished, so that there was nothing left for his people ever to suffer. No condemnation for those who are found in Jesus Christ. Romans 8 verse 1. No curse, no hell, and there can't be another price required. The price has been paid. Jesus fully atoned for every last one of those whom the Father gave him. And the justice of God, then, is fully satisfied. Now, there are many who insist that Jesus died for all, but not all are saved. The Bible never teaches that Jesus died for the sins of every man, woman, and child without exception in the world. He died for all of his people without distinction Distinction of race, color, but not without exception. Jesus clearly said to some, I never knew you. To others he said, I know you. You are my sheep. We need to realize that that argument strikes at the very heart of the cross. The argument at heart is the denial of the suffering of Jesus Christ and the perfect sacrifice of our Savior. If Jesus died for all and not all go to heaven, what happened? 
Jesus' death then was not substitutionary. It was not payment. A cross for all is in reality a cross for none, if not all are saved. Salvation then is only made possible. And it's not an accomplished fact for anyone. There's no comfort. There's no peace in that. Either Jesus died for all mankind and all are saved and there's no place for a hell, or Jesus died for some and they are completely delivered. And that's the teaching of the Catechism in Scripture. The atonement is particular. The atonement was limited to God's elect. In the midst of all of Jesus' suffering, as he made that sacrifice for the sake of his church and his people, he prayed. Strong, passionate prayers characterized Jesus in the midst of his suffering. He experienced the punishment of sin and he cried out to his Father in prayer. The agony of his heart was demonstrated and reflected in those prayers. Fervency is seen in those prayers. An urgency through prayer. Voluntarily making himself of no reputation and suffering for us voluntarily. He was never forced to do it. He didn't need to do any of this. He chose to suffer. He deliberately did that from the very beginning. When he went to John the Baptist to be baptized, remember, John the Baptist said, no, you ought not be baptized. I I should be being baptized by you. Why did Jesus see a need to be baptized? Because he assumed all the sins of his people. And he knew that he needed to be baptized as a picture of the sins of his people being washed away. So that the reality of his baptism was already pointing to the cross. He was baptized because he assumed all the sins of his people. Voluntarily. From the very beginning of his ministry. Taking that upon himself. He chose not to come down off the cross. He could have come down off the cross. He was God. Our sins kept him there. He gave his back to those who were smiting him. He took on all their ridicule, all their suffering. And he stayed for the sake of those whom he represented. Voluntarily, he made this unique sacrifice for the sake of those whom the Father gave him. Beloved, the fruit of that is joyous for us as the church of Jesus Christ. I am assured that he took on him the curse which lay on me. The question that resounds in my mind and yours is this. Did Jesus suffer for me? Did Jesus suffer for me? That's the question I face every day. I know my sins. I know the horror of them. I confess them. I need to know that those sins have been paid for. Did Jesus stand in my place and take upon himself my punishment? Can I have the confidence the curse that I deserve has been removed? God comes to you and to me this morning and God says, Yes, you can have that confidence. By faith, you believe that the suffering and death of Jesus Christ was for me. His suffering was on my behalf. And by faith, I believe the payment that he made was in my stead. He paid for every last one of the sins I ever have committed and I ever will commit. 
so that I know that Jehovah God has cast all my sins away and he will never, ever use them against me. Beloved, everyone who trusts for their salvation in Jesus Christ alone is by faith assured of that wonder. Christ died for me. Christ has brought about redemption. He paid the price that I could never pay. He accomplished the wonder of redemption. And he not only performed that wonder of atonement, but he paid it perfectly so that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are found in him. And he not only died, but he was raised again on the third day, testifying to the fact of the surety, the certainty of this wonder. Beloved, there is victory in his suffering. And we need to see that victory and that joy. No amount of doubt can destroy what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. You may have serious doubts, and I may have serious doubts at times in our lives. David had serious doubts at times in his life. We may think that we're not worthy, that we're too vile of a sinner. And the Bible agrees with us in all of that. I am. I'm too vile of a sinner. I'm guilty. I'm a terrible sinner. We may think that there's no possibility of me being numbered among the children of God. But beloved, we look away from ourselves and we look by faith to Jesus Christ. We don't minimize our sins. We don't minimize our sinfulness. But we learn from the suffering of Jesus Christ how horrible our sins were. We learn from His suffering the extent of our depravity. The way in which God views sin. So serious my sin was that God the Father forsook God the Son and subjected Him to the agony and punishment of hell. The fruit of that, beloved, is that God works in you and in me a hatred for sin. We hate those desires, those lusts that rise up within us. We abhor that sin. We loathe it. And we look to Christ believing that through Him there is forgiveness. This is what he suffered. This is why he suffered. I know what I did to him. I believe that he suffered for me. And the fruit of that confession is that I flee sin. I walk in thanksgiving to God. I pray for the grace by which I might know more fully the wonder of his love and his faithfulness. Beloved, nothing, absolutely nothing compares to what Jesus suffered. The cross of Jesus Christ, the tremendous suffering, humbles us. And that's the confession here of the Apostle in Galatians 6. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no glorying in me. There's no glorying in my accomplishments. There's no focusing on what I'm able to do and what I've performed. All the glorying is to be in Christ. I look away from myself. My sin is so serious that it required of him that he had to bear the suffering of it for 33 years. And then especially during that three-hour time period on the cross. And he binds me to himself by faith so that I confess him as my strength. And he gives me the grace to walk in that narrow way of discipleship and thanksgiving and praise. As many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy upon the Israel of God, 
We read in Galatians 6, verse 16. I know what Jesus did for me. And in gratitude, I take up the way of a disciple. I've heard his voice as his sheep. And I follow him. And I confess, he gives me eternal life. He gives me that by which I will live to all eternity. That doesn't mean that my way on earth is going to be easy. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be challenging. But his suffering was not in vain. He did it in order that he might work in my heart and in the hearts of all of his children the joy and the wonder of salvation. Everlasting life. And to give me the assurance that after this life, I will live. I will live to all eternity in the enjoyment of that glorious hope that is in him alone. Glorying in the cross. That's the glorying of the child of God. That's our perspective of Christ and His suffering. It's all about what He did on Calvary. Our focus is on the wonder of His sacrifice as the only sacrifice necessary. The only sacrifice possible and the only way by which I can know victory and deliverance. What did Jesus say in John 10 verse 28? I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. You who were alienated have been reconciled. In 1 Peter 2 verse 24. Who his own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed ye were healed that healing took place already from eternity and then on Calvary so that we go forward as those who confess I am healed he took my stripes upon him and I go forward now by faith beloved he did it don't doubt it believe it And believe the wonder of God's love and God's mercy displayed through Calvary. There's one other thing that Galatians 6 here points out to us. Having been the recipients of this glorious wonder, not only do we know unspeakable joy, but we're reminded this life is not our home. So long as we're in the midst of this life, there's going to be persecution. Galatians 6 verse 12. Lest... They should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. There's an application of Christ's suffering that's not pleasant for us, according to the flesh. The suffering of Jesus Christ shapes our lives. Not in the sense of the fact that we atone for sin, but in the sense that we bear the suffering of our Lord. We bear and will be persecuted for our Lord Jesus Christ's sake. So that the suffering of Jesus Christ continues for a time in the suffering of his children here on earth. It has this effect, this impact on his church. So that as we stand in antithesis to the wicked world around us, there will be suffering. But we suffer and we endure patiently, considering it a privilege to be named with our Lord who suffered so in order that we might not only suffer with him for a time, 
but then also be glorified with Him. We are a church under the cross. Not only does the cross wash us as white as the new fallen snow, but the cross also requires of us that we bear His reproach for a time. That cross giving us strength so that we will persevere as His children now and to all eternity as those whom He loved and whom He will love to the end. We read in John 13 verse 1, Having loved His own which were in the world, He loved them unto the end. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank Thee for the great wonder Thou hast performed on our behalf, giving unto us a Savior in Jesus Christ our Lord, and working in us the faith by which we confess His suffering as our suffering, and His suffering as that which atone for our sin and gives unto us everlasting joy and hope. Forgive us and strengthen us, we pray. Be near to those who experience doubts and fears and struggles. May we look away from self and may we focus on the wonder of Christ crucified, confessing with the Apostle that all our glory is in the cross of Jesus Christ alone. Amen.